thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Erotic, and with me, as always, is a guy who can build a snowman out of rain, Mike Vandebogart. <laughs> uh, welcome, Joe Erotic, <laughs> uh, and thank you. So, that is a shout-out uh, to my kickboxing coach, Jacob Rodriguez, okay. who has a podcast on UFC, and he always calls me that, and he, told, <laughs> he dared me to do it in the podcast, and I said, A, I would do it, B, shout him out, so shout to Jacob and all the guys down at Rufus Sport, because <laughs> they have gotten me back in shape. Joe Erotic. Yeah. <laughs> almost like Joe Exotic. <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you once again for everyone uh, tuning in. Uh, just a couple of announcements here. First, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters, uh, Zach Trout, uh, sorry, Zach Trot, Margaret uh, Granith, Colleen Fish, Olivia H., Jennifer Rollinson, <laughs> Christine Musel, uh, Cheyenne uh, Chlopek, Anna Henriksen, uh, Grace Marie, oh boy, I'm really sorry about this, um, Grace Marie, uh, Joe. All right, this one's fair to you because you've been doing so good and just kind of going I through know. it. I don't even know where to be, uh, uh, Petling Hug. Petling Hug. P-A-T-A-L-I-N-G-H-U-G. <laughs> so yeah, I, that one I wouldn't even been able to guess at. So and, and this episode, uh, we'd like to uh, thank listener Julie Garrett for emailing us about this case. It's an interesting case. Uh, just a couple of other updates. So on our Patreon page now, we do offer yearly subscriptions. So uh, di- just another option to help support the show. And also on our YouTube channel, we're starting to upload what I call LU clips. So it's basically our normal episodes kind of cut down into smaller kind of bite-sized clips for people that, you know, have a shorter to attention check span. Out. Yeah. <laughs> to, to watch. Um, and then finally, just a couple of comments and corrections from a past episode. Um, so first of all, um, we got some comments about our last episode, Nita Mayo. Uh, she was one of the women, the one of the... She went missing at Donald Vista Point. One yes. of the people that went missing. There you go. Yeah, so we had originally stated that she had driven from Nevada to California, but then I misspoke a couple of times and said Oklahoma. So um, she, in fact, did not drive from Oklahoma to California. It was Nevada to California. Um, and then we had a couple of comments about people saying that we downplayed the threat of uh, black bears in California. So first of all, Joan, I have never... We always prepare for bear encounters when we're in the wilderness where there's bears. So, uh, and we always encourage other people to do that. But um, we were kind of making a joke how we were more afraid of skunks than black bears in that location. But in the re- in reality, black bear attacks on humans are incredibly rare, and they've only happened, I believe, 61 times since 1900 in all of North America. Uh, and that's uh, deaths by black bears. So. 
you know, take them serious, but, you know, don't let it ruin your, your trip out in the woods because this is just another good sign that we're doing really well (laughs) because we have so many people watching. We're starting to get those uh, Karens on the internet that, that, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, people who really listen to the show and have been with us forever, we initially always talked about it in the beginning. We like to bring levity to these things. We understand they're serious. Uh, We're not experts in understanding land management and the Bureau of uh, the Department of the Interior or anything. So everything we do is we research as, as much as we need to. The main focus is the case. Yeah. So when we're talking about the area, just to give a generalization. So we might get something wrong. We might state an opinion. Uh, there's some levity to it. So And a lot of times uh, we'll give the 50,000-foot view of a location where someone went missing. We're not always giving an exact description of like yeah, we the even trail they're on. We haven't been there. We don't we know. We haven't been there. And sometimes they go missing in really obscure uh, national forests, or it might be on a border location that borders a forest and a national park. We always try to get that stuff correct, but sometimes, sometimes we'll describe, you know, for Donal Vista, it's very close to Yosemite. So most people don't know where Stanilas National Forest is, but everyone's heard of Yosemite. So just help people understand the geographic region. We'll kind of describe Yosemite because the climate's going to be similar. Well, here's the bottom line. This isn't a court case. Yeah. <laughs> We're telling a story. We're giving an overview. We get the information from the internet. I'd say what makes us better than a lot of other shows, uh, when we get criticism, even when people come on Reddit and are very, very, very rude, <laughs> <laughs> what we will still do is come on the next episode and correct it as Mike is doing, and we always will. So yes. if you have criticisms, that's great. No need to be mean. Yeah, though <laughs> so we can take it. but We can take it, but like, calm down. Calm down. I Tell will us what say, we did wrong. We'll mention it, and if we get the whole thing wrong, we'll redo an episode. Yeah, I will say I won't. We, I won't say when we're going, but Joe and I will be hiking out in uh, West Virginia in the coming months. Yeah, at, you don't want to tell our fans so they'll all show up and, <laughs> and bombard us. Um, we're, yeah, we're going to <laughs> the newest national park in the country, at New River Gorge. So if anyone, I'm excited. Yeah, it's if anyone uh, that listens to the show lives out there. Uh, We'd love to meet some of the listeners if at the visitor center one day if it works out. So direct message us on Facebook or email us if yeah, absolutely if you're going to be out there. So, all right, that's all I have. So we don't piss anyone else off. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. July 2013. Experienced hiker and mountain climber, Matthew Green was planning to go hiking and climbing with some friends. Matt suffered a few setbacks and his friends moved on while Matt waited. After a call to his mother, no one had heard from or saw Matt ever again. Join us this week as we investigate Matt's disappearance in the Mammoth Lakes area.
So the Mammoth Lakes area is in California, and you mentioned it's right by Yosemite National Park yep. uh, to the north and northwest uh, with the John Muir Wilderness of the South. And if you've been a listener to our shows, I'm sure you've heard those names come up multiple times. <laughs> For whatever reason, it's just seeming more and more like California is not where you go if you don't want to go missing <laughs> and now, now angry Cal, uh, angry California comments for hikers. No, I'm I mean, kidding. yeah, that's just because they have so many amazing national parks. Yeah. It's huge. They have a ton of national parks. The national parks they do have are giant. Uh, so I think they're just, it's just, uh, they're unlucky because of their size. And this actually, the area we're talking about is not a national park. It's a wilderness area, but, um, this gentleman, uh, did a lot of climbing all over the region. So he was in Yosemite. He was in the wilderness area. He was in the John Muir wilderness area. So while, you know, Joe's going to go through the location profile of kind of the Ansel Adams wilderness area, but just understand that he was hiking and climbing kind of all over this region. Yeah. He was like a pro. Yeah. So he, he was going everywhere he could. So uh, this, the area we're talking about the Mammoth Lakes area, which includes uh, the Ansel Adams area and those other kind of areas we talked about. That's a generalization of where we're talking about. Uh, it was formed in 1964 and it's very heavily used. So there's about 30 million people that live within a few hours drive of this area. So it's going to be high traffic. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be desolate. Uh, however, the formations are more, I don't know, Mars-like scape. It almost looks like. Yeah. Rocky and I mean, and it is an expansive, rugged terrain. So... I mean, you are kind of out there, but yeah, the, this whole area sees a lot of tourist activity. Yeah, it's a Mediterranean climate uh, showing with most precipitation falling in a mild winter and other seasons are nearly dry with less than 3% of precipitation falling in the long, hot summer. So it's dry, rocky. I just saw, when I was looking at the pictures of it, um, I'll pull them up. It just kind of looks like if it were all red, it looks like the images that get sent back from Mars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a few trees, obviously, in some of the areas. But just and it does, at the tops. you know, we were just talking about how we <clears throat> generalize some regions. It does look a lot like Yosemite in spots, too. This okay, so like in the valleys where you have like the, the evergreens and stuff? Yeah, because so like Mammoth Lakes is actually only 30 miles away from Half Dome. So it's not very far. And so you know, it's, they all share the same kind of climate and terrain, but there are areas of the Ansel Adams wilderness that are just absolutely rugged and um, a climber's paradise. Yeah. But that's, I was going to say, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. So the Ansel Adams wilderness has an elevation from 3,500 to 13,157 feet, uh, forming the Northern end of the high Sierras. And it includes the Ritter range, which includes Mount Ritter, Banner Peak, and the minarets. Ritter range the, the Mirnets and the peaks of the Mount Mount Ritter and Banner Peak can be seen from all over Mammoth Lakes. They are composed of metal volcanic rock, which was formed in several volcanic super eruptions, which means they form spiky landforms and make life difficult for climbing as they flake apart easily. So you think about like loose volcanic rock. And mm -hmm. they, they almost look like, you know, when you pour wet sand in a pile yeah. and it kind of molds over it. That's kind of where it looks like a bunch of those. Yep. So 34% of the wilderness is in the Inyo National Forest. 54% of it is in the Sierra, Nev uh, Sierra National Forest. And less than 1% covers the Devil's Post Powell National Monument. So it's just some of the animals in the area. There are black bear, uh, which you should take very seriously. No grizzlies. No grizzlies. There's no <laughs> grizzlies in California. Mike asked. I assumed I was wrong. We were wrong. <laughs> we should have known that. We should have. And now we will never forget it. Yes. Uh, there are bighorn sheep, 
Uh, I'd say the type of danger there is they'll knock you off the ridge if they want to. <laughs> uh, mountain lions and mule deer. So you do have uh, the cats and the black bears. Outside of that, not too much of a big animal threat. Yeah. Especially while climbing. I mean, then you only run into some sheep. And the few areas I've been climbing or gone where sheep are, they're just not running around. No, they'll avoid you. Yeah. So the terrain, as we said, uh, the Ansel Adams Wilderness contains substantial area above the tree line. So most of it is at approximately 9,600 feet to 10,400 feet. So I think that's very significant when we're talking about potential danger and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about a guy like Matt, who's experienced, maybe not as much, but it's still, I think, a factor. Yeah, I mean, once we get into more about Matt, you'll find that he was probably the most experienced hiker and climber we've ever done a case on. Uh, I was telling Joe before we started recording, it'd be similar to... Uh, what was the guy's name in the National Ge- Geographic? Al- Alex Honnold. It'd be similar to if he went missing. Yeah. This guy was obviously not that skilled. He wasn't a free climber, but he climbed a lot. He's been out in the wilderness, and when you're doing it that much, you've come across many uh, situations where you learn either doing the wrong things or the right things. And so it's the type of person you go, okay, if they've come across something, they they should know what they're doing. Yeah. Okay, so to sum it all up, if I'm going to talk about the dangers, lack of sheltered higher elevations, I'll say unpredictable weather patterns, just because when you're at an altitude with no trees potentially around above the tree line, uh, and then other various terrain hazards. I think terrain hazards probably in this location is the highest risk, uh, even for an experienced hiker or climber, I think. Yeah, if you're putting cams in that rock, or even if they're <clears throat> bolted but it's flaky, Yeah. this is uh, – now I'm going into opinion territory because I climb, but I've never climbed in this type of rock. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they bolt them or not. So if they don't, he's using nuts and cams. I could imagine if you have stuff that can flake off and you experience a fall, that could be really bad. Yeah. So I would say – I agree with you where I'd say terrain's probably the most hazardous only because of his experience. Yeah. Um, so difficulty in general, this entire wilderness contains 349 miles of hiking trails, uh, including portions of John Muir and the PCT or Pacific Crest Trail. And the Ritter Range is very challenging and would not be impossible to die on the steeper parts. So the metavolcanic rock that we talked about can be very difficult for the climbers and it's also slippery. So that's the one thing it's saying here, uh, which is completely different from like a granite mountain nearby. So yeah, I could imagine if you're like, you got a nut in the crack or you got a cam in the crack and you slip and you don't have it placed perfectly Yeah, and it would shear the rock off. That could be end up being dangerous for climbing. So yeah, I could see what would be the attraction to an experienced climber. Yeah. If it's a difficult area, it's kind of like, okay, as you get better, you want to conquer harder things. Yeah, exactly. So uh, just quickly going through profile of Matthew. Uh, so like we said, his name was Matthew Green. He uh, last point of contact was, um, like we said, with his mother on, I believe, July 16th. Uh, It was a phone call. He's a male, um, age 39. But when I was researching this, there was a lot of articles that, um, you know, mistakenly said he was 38 years old. But I... Did you go on Reddit and yell (laughs) at him? (laughs) No. (laughs) I actually... did the math? I got the sheriff's department's press release on it, and they stated 39, so that's the age I'm going with. Did he have, like, a birthday in July or something, and maybe... I don't know. I, I know I found his birthday, but I didn't list it here. All right. I like giving people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> uh, so he was five foot 11, 155 pounds. He had blondish brown, uh, short hair, blue eyes, 
clothing he was last seen in. He was carrying a large black-white backpack. And there's lots of pictures of him. Um, he had a yellow La Sportiva, Nepal Extremes, crampons, and one ice axe. He had a blue hat, and he was probably wearing a long sleeve shirt with a darker green-black uh, short sleeve on top. Um, he did not have his tent, bivy, sleeping bag, stove, or green heavy jacket, indicating that he was only expecting to go out on a day hike. So as I get into the timeline, we'll go through the gear he had with him and the gear he didn't, and that might be an indication of what he was attempting to do that day. Uh, Personalities, Personality-wise, he was very physically fit. I mean, just in this trip alone, he probably did dozens of climbs. As I say, he was 5'11 and 155 pounds. Yeah. There's like not an ounce of fat there. He, uh, he had run the Boston Marathon multiple times because he's from um, Pennsylvania, but his mother also described him as a bit of a loner, and he lived alone. Um, I think... So he had climbing friends in the climbing community, but he yeah. didn't have roommates and kind of kept, kept to himself. Maybe, uh, you know, I think after watching some documentaries on climbers, I think that's kind of a, a trend. They, they kind of roam around climbing, and they're more solitary um, I individuals. But... Um, he had no pre-existing health issues. Uh, his actual perf- um, profession was he was a teacher, a math teacher in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and he lived in Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, prior to his current position, he was in the Peace Corps in Papua New Guinea uh, from 98 to 02. So, um, you know, he has a lot of experience in the wilderness. Uh, I don't have any... Any he, he may be a loner, but anyone I've ever met that is on the Peace Corps are usually very interesting people. Yeah, and he's a teacher. Yeah, I mean, so he de- he deals with people all day long in his profession. Yeah, so, so may- maybe he wants to just be alone sometimes right. after doing all the work in the Peace Corps and dealing with a bunch of teenagers in high school. Yeah. Uh, may- maybe he just likes a quiet. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> so he's absolutely not a novice in the outdoors. He's <clears throat> Like I said, he's probably one of the most experienced hikers and climbers we've ever covered on uh, Locations Unknown. And family and friends said he was very careful and critical, a critical thinker. Um, he would, even if he'd never been to an area, he would do tons of research before going and know every detail about that area before hiking it, kind of all the stuff we talk about before we go on a trip. Um, yeah, when you get people that are that good and have done it that long, they know the best way. <laughs> like, hey, yeah. I'm going to go here. I could die doing this. I might as well know exactly what's going on so that doesn't happen. Yeah, and family and friends described that, you know, he was, you know, a, a hike that would take normal people three days to do it. He can do it in one day. So, like we said, very... You can f- see that with a marathon running type <laughs> yeah, stuff. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like I said, he was very experienced, and he also had a lot of experience in this area prior to his disappearance. He had been there for several weeks hiking and climbing. Um, so I have no doubt that he, uh, you know, didn't know what he was doing. So I don't, you know, who knows? That yeah, I think that fact that's no, that's a super safe assumption. I think he arrived there and there's, I, I would argue there's probably, unless I, I this is, the one you did the most research on. So I'm, yeah. I'm listening and giving my feedback. And also for those of you who don't know, if you hear me say something, <laughs> how me and Mike approach a lot of these episodes are one of us does the story. The other one doesn't only because we want kind of fresh commentary and questions coming off almost as if you, the listener, you're hearing it for the first time. We like having someone in the room that also hears it for the first time yeah. to try and see things or think things differently than the person who researched it. So 
Do you hear me say things that are wrong or I'm asking questions? Because I literally do not know. <laughs> so going into this until I hear otherwise, I would say he's probably prepared in every way for this entire area, for this situation. So I would immediately put that in the way back as a possibility of yeah. why he disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll jump right into the timeline. So it starts off on June 27th of 2013. Matt arrives at the Mammoth Lakes area to hike, camp, and climb the peaks of the Eastern Sierra. Like we said, Mammoth Lakes is about 30 miles, um, I want to say, south-southeast of Half Dome, like if you were to draw a line on a map. So it's very close to Yosemite. Um, You know, he arrived a few days before a couple of his friends, John and Jill Greco, arrived on June 28th. Uh, So John, Jill, and their nine-year-old son checked in at a hotel nearby, Over the next 10 days, Matt and John climbed many of the region's classic routes um, like Crystal Crag, Clark's Canyon, Benton Crag, and the Gong Show Crag. (laughs) They also did a few on the Eastern Sierra's classic alpine routes, including the North Collier, uh, North Peak near Yosemite National Park, and V-Notch on uh, Pulmonium Peak near Big Pine. So he was doing a lot of climbing um, all over the place. I'm jealous of that trip. Right. Uh, So, you know, he had planned to, I I don't think he planned to stay in California the whole time. time. Uh, He planned on doing kind of a cross-country hiking trip, and then he was hoping to be home in Pennsylvania no later than August 18th of 2013. So fast forward to July 6th of 2013, and uh, Matt's car breaks down. So he drove a Subaru. And, um, I guess it blew a head gasket, which is why he was stuck there for as long as he was. Um, so while he waited to get his car fixed, uh, his friends kind of went on to the next location because they actually had to get back for some stuff. So, uh, John and Jill, like I said, were scheduled to leave Mammoth Lakes on July 7th as John had to work, uh, had a work meeting in Southern California the next day. So Matt, said, you know, once the repairs were finished, uh, he planned to drive to Colorado to join some other friends uh, for more climbing. So uh, the morning of... It sounds like all of his friends were, like, strictly climbing community. Yeah. Probably, like, through the internet or type something. Yeah, and I mean, being 39, he's probably been climbing for a long time, so you build up a a good friend base of, um, you know, climbers. So the morning of July 7th... uh, the whole group went, they hiked to Emerald Lake in the Mammoth Lakes Basin. Uh, before Matt continued up the trail to the Mammoth Crest, John and Jill headed back down to their car to begin to the drive south. This would be the last time that any of Matt's friends ever saw him. So we're talking July 7th. Uh, so now over the next eight days, he continued to climb the Sierra Peaks uh, and routes that uh, took his fancy, checking in with John and Jill via text every few days. So Okay, so they they saw him there, but they're so they know he was completing those mountains because he was texting them and yeah. updating them. Okay, yep. I was just gonna ask him like, how do they know that he did all these other <laughs> right. things? Um, so July eighth, now twenty thirteen, Matt solo ki- solo climbed the Regolith Minaret, a ten thousand five hundred sixty foot peak in the Ritter Range west of Mammoth Lakes. The next day, he climbed Dana Kulur. Uh, a popular 1,200-foot ice route on a 13,000-foot peak near Yosemite Park's uh, eastern entrance. On July 11th, he took a shuttle to Red's uh, Meadow Meadow Valley to hike and climb the minarets in the Ritter Range again. 
Uh, he got off at the shuttle uh, at Devil's Post Pile Trailhead and climbed the 12,280-foot Clyde Minaret, the tallest of the minaret, minaret peaks. Now, finally, between July 12th and 15th, Matt hiked a cross-country route on Mammoth Crest and climbed Unicorn Peak in Yosemite's high country. So he was, wow. I mean, just reading through everything that he did, I, I get tired. <laughs> yeah. I mean. So it was like four, five days, six days. Yeah. That's so awesome. That can, that shows you, A, the experience he had, and B, the kind of how physically fit he was. Yeah, he's a serious <laughs> climber. Yeah. So um, we're fast forwarding now to July 16th of 2013. So um, Matt was staying at this campground called Shady Rest Campground in the Mammoth Lakes area while his car was uh, getting repaired. He planned to stay at this campsite until July 17th. Um, according to his family, Matt made a phone call to his mom, uh, Patricia to check in. Uh, she said, it's not like I heard from him every week. Uh, she said, describing her son as a loner who loved being in the wild. He just kind of liked doing his own thing. She said, adding that he lives by himself in Bethlehem. So on that call, he, uh, you know, explained to her that, um, he wanted to get on a, on glacier ice and that meant the Ritter range in, uh, part of the Sierra. So uh, this kind of gives people a little bit of an idea of where he possibly could have gone. I think you'll see the theme here. Ritter Range is kind of where I think everyone thought he went. Um, this would turn out to be the last contact that Matt would have with anyone via text, phone, or in person. So um, that was July 16th. So fast forwarding now to July 21st. <clears throat> And I will, I'll stop here for a second. So this timeline is, I pieced this together through a lot of different news articles and um, there's a Facebook page that the family of Matt started and it had very detailed timelines of kind of not so much what happened before he went missing, but kind of everything happening after. So um, I tried to pull information from a lot of different sources. So uh, this is probably one of the more in-depth timelines we have from the, the stance of, like, family and friends. Usually it's more based on reports from, like, search and rescue officials and things like that. So, so. because of all the research you've done, you've cultivated potentially the best timeline of these events I that's think, out there? Yeah. I mean, if you take it from everywhere and put piece together things that are missing in different ones, so that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said, July 21st, uh, after three unpaid nights at the uh, Shady Rest campground, the owner reported Matt's abandoned campsite and his suspicions of a missing or overdue person to the Mammoth Lakes Police Department. Officers responded to the call and visited the campground and recorded the information on a police log. Camp number 164 was left intact, and Matt uh, had not returned to it with his clothes and gear still inside the tent and his food was stashed nearby in a bear box. Uh, the tent was subsequently taken down and Matt's gear put into a storage locker with the assumption that he'd be back to collect it at a later date. So that was on July 21st. Now, unfortunately for Matt, the missing persons report wasn't filed until July 29th. So we always say in these cases that time is of the essence when someone goes missing. Yeah, uh, I could. I mean... And we don't know. Um, that could have been like 12 to 13 days from 
like where the last contact was, assuming he went missing right away, that's a long time. Or yeah. potentially almost two weeks. And unfortunately, we do not have a wreck. You know, we know he talked to his mom on the 16th, and we know the missing persons report was filed on the 29th. We don't know when in that time period he actually went missing. So it could be two weeks or it could be two days. Yeah. But it's always um, the longer it goes from the last point of contact to when they're reported missing in the search and rescue mission starts. Do you know if he was always texting when he would complete things with his friends? So we could say, like, if he went complete silence after talking to his mom, if they're saying, hey, we haven't gotten texts or anything. The friends did mention that, that they found it kind of odd that they stopped getting texts from him. So after. I would say reasonably we could say shortly after he had contact with his mom is when he went missing. Probably within a few days after that call with his mom he was the actual point where he went missing. Yeah, I, I would only say that based on just when I do a mountain, like I'll at least text my wife because I'm like excited. Like yeah. if he's conquering all this stuff in like record time or whatever and he's texting him almost like bragatory, like, hey, I did this, I did this, I did this, and then that just goes dead. Yeah. That's abnormal. So yeah, I, yeah. I would argue within a few days of talking to his mom is probably when he went well, missing. Well, and honestly, we can say probably based on the owner of the – the campground reporting on July 21st that he still hadn't been back to his tent. Yeah. That, so, I mean, I think we can probably, while we don't have verifiable proof, I, I would say between the 16th and 21st is when he probably went missing. Yeah, I we, agree. We don't know for sure, but so even going on the 21st, you know, that's, that's a long time, eight days yeah. before a missing persons report is filed. So moving forward a, a couple days, July 31st, uh, Detective Hornbeck, so he's one of the guys working this case from the local law enforcement. Uh, he contacted Verizon for emergency information request, and they said his cell phone had been powered off for quite some time, and there was no way to track the current location. Uh, they went on to say the last ping was registered to a cellular tower over Mammoth Mountain on July 16th, um, which the fact that his car was in the shop, he may have had no way to charge his phone, so that doesn't necessarily mean he went missing on the 16th. That just means his phone died. Um, but, again, I, I still think it was between the 16th and 21st. So, mm -hmm. according to Detective Hornbeck, the ping created a cone-shaped triangle with towers in Fresno and June Lake, indicating that Matt's phone was located within that region, which consists mostly of Ansel Adams' wilderness. Uh, Hornbeck notified Bill Green at Mono or Mono County Sheriff's Search and Rescue, but since Matthew Green did not tell anyone where he was going and his car was still at the workshop, they couldn't deter determine a start point for the SAR search. So this is one of the things, Joe, and I talk about all the time, is you always let somebody know where you're going. Yeah. Even if you're by yourself, um, leave a note, leave something in your tent, uh, because you'll see in this case the search and rescue mission couldn't really kick off because they're not going to start searching for someone if they don't have an actual location to look for. It's such an easy thing to do. Yeah. And it can <clears throat> mean, I mean, look at these people have a cell phone ping and they still aren't entirely certain because you have a radius. Yeah. And when you're talking about days in the mountain above tree line where there could be snow or cold at night, uh, you might only have a couple extra days. Yeah. If you're prepared. So, uh, you know, a good tip for anyone hiking by themselves is leave a note in your car, leave a note in your tent, you know, time, date, and where you're planning to hike. Because if you do go missing, that will give them a point 
to start looking. If you don't do anything, they, they're not going to start a search because they can't just, you know, search a thousand square mile area for you. Absolutely. So, and the detective Hornbeck goes into, so I have a quote here from him, um, regarding his cell phone. The last call he made was to the garage where his Subaru was being fixed based on the cell phone, uh, latitude and longitude. It's possible that your brother was hiking North Northwest of mammoth mountain. This is a large area and search and rescue doesn't have enough information to start a search. I've also placed flyers with your brother's photo at the mountain and ranger station. So right off the bat, uh, they, they can't start the search because they don't know where he is. And then on August 1st, the, the Mono County uh, Search and Rescue Team pretty much stated the same thing. They, uh, notified, they were notified of Matt's disappearance. However, they were unable to start the search because they didn't have a last known location. So I still think, um, now I'm assuming they, I mean, they started searching anyway. I feel like that's at least enough information to start versus other ones we hear about where it's like, there are cars at the trailhead. Yeah. Like, that's an even bigger, like, I feel like with the lat longitude, if they have triangulated cell phone signal, yeah, like, I can understand why they don't want to start there if it was like, like you said, it just died and he's actually somewhere else. But the alternative is no information at all. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they started piecing together. It was kind of like a puzzle, and we'll get into that a bit okay. here, but... Um, on August 3rd of 2013, uh, Matt's friends were working with the search and rescue teams. Um, Matt had a guidebook and uh, it had pages torn out for the Mount Ritter area, whereas pages for the Mount Lyell were untouched. So his friends were pretty confident that he was in the Mount Ritter area. Uh, so SAR personnel started going into that area, but uh, by land, but due to some nearby forest fires, there weren't any available helicopters at that time um, to start the search, though they had been approved once some became available. Uh, it goes on to state that additional SAR crews hiked up Mount Lyell to check the summit register. Uh, ground crews were also heading up to uh, Mount Ritter at the time. It was later confirmed that Matt never signed the summit registers on Banner, Ritter, or Lyell, so... Um, and I'm guessing he typically did, and that's where that's significant. Yeah, I think a lot of these guys, you know, will sign those as kind of, you know, it's, you know, evidence you were there, you did the sure. summit. Um, so, yeah, there is proof that he he didn't reach the tops of at least those three mountains. Um, so this is the evening now of August 3rd, and the SAR team provided an update to Matt's friends. Uh, they wrote... Nothing found by today's ground crew. Working on getting more ground crews for tomorrow. Helicopters should be doing aerial search a little uh, afternoon tomorrow. Flights depend on the amount of smoke from the forest fires west of Mammoth. Uh, when SAR was asked if they had a uh, summited Ritter, uh, they wrote, Long approach, so team concentrated on lower areas of the mountain, still working tonight on getting a big helicopter to transport summit team in tomorrow to the base of the snowfield. So, uh, you know, they were kind of slowly making their way up some of the mountains, you know, kind of searching the lower levels of, you know, Ritter. Um, going on to uh, August 5th of 2013, the uh, friends and family received a new update from the SAR operation. This one was a little more detailed with kind of what they had been doing. Unfortunately, nothing had been found at this point. They had ground crews scouring the area while a helicopter was doing an aerial search. Um, the helicopter crew did take a lot of pictures that will get analyzed for evidence of Matt. The SAR team was actually starting to pull permit information from everyone who signed summit registers at nearby peaks to see if anyone had encountered Matt or, you know, had any information about him. And 
Officials once again went through Matt's gear and determined he was not equipped to overnight in the area. His tent, bivy, sleeping bag, stove, heavy jacket were still with his gear. Additionally, no rope or technical equipment were missing, so they believe he wasn't planning any climbs at the time of his disappearance. Yeah, that sounds more like potentially a day hike. Yeah. Um, however, so I pulled this from the family made some comments from the Facebook page. They wrote, however, some items that could be considered technical gear were missing, including mountaineering boots, step-in crampons, one ice axe, his large pack, his cell phone, and digital camera. So that sounds like, cause I carry that. Maybe he was planning to cover some snowfields. Snowfield. That's yeah. exactly what I thought. Is he, if he brought his camera, he's probably going to go hike up a snowfield, take some photos and be done with it. He did mention to his mom that he wanted to get up on some glacier ice. So yeah. That, okay, that makes sense. That, yeah. That would be, I'm leaning that way. So uh, moving on to August 10th of 2013, I got the sense doing the research for this case that the community of Mammoth Lakes overwhelmingly was coming out to support the search for Matt, so much so that uh, the search and rescue teams had to make an official note like to the public, and they wrote, um, anyone helping needs to understand that this area is serious terrain. The altitude alone will do many people do in many people. Just being a willing searcher who loves Matt is not enough. Anyone going into the backcountry needs to be skilled at handling the rigors of the mountains. Otherwise, there is a risk of them becoming a victim as well. So I'm, I'm sure that can be scary for a SAR to assume crowds of people going out, and that turns into Great. Multiple missing well, persons. Even, or if someone gets stuck and they have to be rescued, you're pulling yeah. away from resources, even if it's fine. So, But also, shout out to that town, yeah. uh, who I think really cares about keeping up that you know, camaraderie amongst those types of people. I'm sure that keeps the tourism and the money going in that area. So, Well, you got to think when, you know, these search and rescue teams are going into these really dangerous areas, like they are at a huge risk of potentially what happened to the person they're searching for. Yeah, we've already done at least one case where SAR people have died in the operation looking for other people. So it's there's definitely not a no-risk scenario for them, even though they're experts at it. Yeah, and honestly, this is one case where I think Matt was probably more experienced than maybe most of the people searching for him. It's possible. <laughs> I think it's possible. Yeah. yeah, you get up to that level, somebody that, I mean, you th- like you mentioned Alex Honnold. Like, yeah. if anyone's ever doing a climbing rescue, he'd be he's the best in the world right now, yeah. Argu- arguably. I'm sure people amongst the climbing community might may argue over it, but... I don't know. That documentary is crazy. Or maybe right? he's the craziest one. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on to August 13th of 2013, um, friends and family started searching through Matt's belongings at his house. Uh, they got access to his cell phone records and Hotmail account and bank and credit card records. Uh, after getting into all that information, there was no, no new evidence uh, pulled from that. Family and friends also got another update from one of the search teams in the Ritter area. Ritter area. Uh, the note read, the guides at SWS have been guiding and climbing the Ritter range for the last seven days. All the guides are back home with no reports of any evidence of Matthew. Uh, they and their clients have climbed Clyde Minaret, the glacier route on Ritter, the north face of Ritter, the Ritter Banner Saddle, the north ridge, and the south face of Banner. Best of luck in your search, and we advise extreme caution and safety in your efforts. Uh, many of these lesser traveled regions in the area very dangerous. So that's the common theme throughout this this case is the area where Matt went missing is very treacherous. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not for inexperienced people. Um, and interesting little post here. Uh, 
people started wondering at this time if they should expand the search area outside of the Mammoth Lakes area. And it was really because of a single post on the Find Matt Green Facebook page. A retired police officer in Minden, Nevada, posted this following uh, comment. Uh, he wrote, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced I saw him in Minden, Nevada on 8-6-2013 at 10:42, walking north on 395. I'm a retired cop and new member of the Douglas County Search and Rescue Team, but did not pay much attention to the guy at first. He had a backpack with what I thought was a burnt orange sleeping bag stuffed in the top. I saw that he had a, a burnt orange tent and could have uh, that could have been it. I saw the article the next day and reported to the Douglas County, Carson City, and NHP. His options would have been to take Highway 50 to Lake Tahoe or continue on 395 through Reno into California, heading to Susanville. If that was him, I saw that. If that was him, I saw that is. Sorry about the. Uh, I'm reading this directly from what he posted. He he goes on to say he looked homeless, like he had just woken up, and his hair was sticking up. He also had several weeks of growth on his beard. Um, so based on this post, family and friends actually alerted hospitals and homeless shelters in this area of Matt's disappearance. But again, nothing ever turned of you know turned up of that. My gut is that is not him. Probably not. After hearing it, like it, it's I'd say good for them to follow up on it. But my gut was that's a homeless man. Yeah. Based on yeah, especially if he had the tent because he left his tent at the campground. Did he? It's not un. It's not out of the ordinary for him to have, if he brought a big bag out yeah, and was planning to maybe overnight in a glacier field uh, with the gear he had. So it's. That'd be a long, I mean, if he was doing that by foot, that's a long walk. Not if you run the Boston marathon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm leaning towards this is not him. I think what's that phenomenon where once you are aware of. The red herring. Well, you start seeing it. So yeah. like, you know of somebody missing, so now everybody that looks suspicious might be that missing person. Yeah, it's like confirmation bias or yeah, a red like herring. That. I think it's red herring where you hear something and then you hear it three more times yeah. into something you haven't heard before or whatever. Yep. So moving on to August 15th of 2013, the family hires a private pilot and another, another gentleman, Tom Cochran. Um, they flew a specialized camera called a RED camera over the area for hours, collecting over 100 gigabytes of data. Uh, their plan was to edit the video into still frames and examine each in depth. These cameras were originally developed by the Oakley Sunglasses Company and cost around $100,000, and they are pri primarily used in big-budget films. Uh, the camera is capable of recording high-quality images at 30 frames per second while being zoomed in at uh, three times. Um, according to people familiar with the search, this may have been the first time this type of technology had been used in a SAR operation. So this is kind of interesting because we talked about in the Paul Miller case that they use this kind of photographic technology where they take tons, thousands of pictures, yeah. and then they analyze for things that aren't nature. So well, like, that's what I was wondering because I, I, from what it sounds like, okay, you're getting good, high-quality images in there, but unless yeah. you have software to analyze it, I mean, human eyes... Going over that would be almost pointless. So from what I gathered was they were crowdsourcing this, so people were actually analyzing the photos themselves. That's a great idea. Yeah. Sick the internet on it. And but the difference with the Paul Miller case was, um, in that case, they fed all that data into a software program 
that was able to analyze probably, you know, thousands yeah, of pictures. Yeah, used AI to say, this is nature, this is nature, and, and yeah. only showed anomalies yep. to a group of people. But it, it's kind of interesting to see kind of the genesis of this kind of search technology take off. It's really cool. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's probably going to become more and more common in search and rescue operations because this is back in 2013. Sure. Um, so interesting tool that was used uh, going on to August 18th. Um, apologize here. A team of friends who had been in California searching for Matt returned home, and no new leads or evidence was discovered. So a lot of Matt's friends flew out from Pennsylvania and were helping with the search. Um, this is actually kind of interesting. I would love to get this guy on the podcast for an interview someday. Um, August 28th of 2013, a professional searcher and local resident, Dean Rossnow, was thanked by friends and family for taking up the search for Matt. Dean has participated in over 700 search and rescue operations over 35 years. Uh, but based on media reports, Dean didn't turn up any evidence of Matt during his search. So this was kind of cool. Uh, Dean did not know Matt and basically just read about it in the news. And he he kind of said, I, I don't think I could ever, you know, rest or sleep well knowing that Matt was out there missing and I didn't use my skills to try and help find him. So that's kind of the reason why he, he started searching for him. Um, yeah, and he's got a book on search and rescue in high Sierras. Yeah. So we'll, um, we'll reach out to him and try and get him on the show. Or if you listen and uh, enough, <laughs> Hey, enough people have been listening. We're getting yeah. some information. If you know Dean or have a contact that knows him, uh, let him know. We'd love to have him on the show and we'd love to uh, learn more about high Sierras and, and search and rescue out there. Yeah, so he actually did an interview with a local uh, news operation out there at the time, and I've just got some quotes from him. So he wrote, I think the sheriff absolutely made the right call not to search. Within any county in the state, the sheriff is mandated by law to provide search and rescue services for both residents and guests alike. However, a search will only be called on actual actionable information, not hunches or assumptions. By simply not taking a few minutes to leave information with someone, Matthew tied to the hands of the sheriff and the SAR team. He goes on to say, however, in spite of this, the conversations with Matthew, uh, conversations that Matthew had with friends and the gear that he was missing from his belongings said to me he was going to the Ritter Range. His family has largely accepted that he's dead and understands the magnitude of the area. But as a parent, uh, parent without a body, you always wonder. Out of any and all the mistakes Green uh, may have made uh, his biggest one was not telling anyone where he was going that day. A mistake that Rosnow said he used to make, used to make all the time. Um, he goes on to say, "It may not have saved his life, but it would have given the family closure." Uh, my sole intent on finding Matthew was to help the family find peace. As I told them, you hope with every tragedy that something good can come of it. Uh, perhaps the good from this could be the effect Matthew's story has on others. Maybe they'll think twice. He finally goes on to say, someday a random hiker will find an item and we'll go see what, what we can find at that point. Even if one assumed uh, that Green is somewhere in the Ritter Range, Rasno said the search would be the ultimate needle in the biggest haystack ever. You could take 100 professional searchers to the area and spend the rest of your lives looking and never find him. So, you know, he's getting at the point that we made about, obviously, you, you want to tell people where you're going and... He also is stressing how 
massive this area is and you could fall and never be found. Uh, so it's, I think, you know, he's saying, you know, you could get lucky and find him, but you know, you could have people out there forever and maybe you wouldn't find him. Sure. So, um, finally on, uh, September 20th of 2013. So we're several months since he went missing Per reports of family and friends, there were still a few volunteer searchers in the area that had been periodically checking in. Um, no new evidence had been found. F- at this point, family and friends were considering other SAR options, including bringing in professional trackers and a retired officer who had experience with cadaver dogs. So they were considering, uh, you know, all their options at this point. And I think just to reiterate, I know you moved on past it. Yeah. But what do you say was the most important thing, right? If you're going to do anything right, tell someone where you're at. I mean, yeah. I didn't even know that part was coming up, and that's, like, the one thing we hammered on. So if you listen to the show and you take away anything from all of the episodes, this is the 46th episode, always let people know what you're doing the day you're doing it if you're going out in the wilderness. Absolutely. That's it. That's, it. That's, that's, that's the biggest thing you can do. Obviously, be prepared, too. But if for whatever reason you forgot something that day or whatever, if somebody knows where you are and when you're supposed to be back and you're not and they come looking for you, your odds are greatly increased of being found alive. And then you won't be a topic on our show. And I think that's like, (laughs) I'd say the biggest unintentional thing that we want to hammer home. When we do this show, it's half entertainment, half interesting. But a lot of people contact us and say, thank you for teaching us this stuff. Yeah. Because it will help. Oh, I never thought of that. Every time I go out, I'm going to do this. They, They message us all the time. Have your itinerary, and if it changes, let somebody know. That's yeah. it. And I actually, um, so the, the family posted on a lot of different hiking uh, forums, and one of the things that I, I saw that kept coming up was people recommended, especially for someone like Matt who is doing a lot of climbing, you know, deep in the backcountry, buy a personal locator beacon. We've talked about it on lots of other episodes. Uh, if you set that off, it's going to give searchers your exact gps coordinates of where you are and it could be life or death based on that and i'm not recommend you know i don't recommend if you're just going on a hike in glacier that you need one of those it's probably overkill if yeah you like could, on a touristy trail like heavily traveled there's signs along honestly it. if you if you can afford it it's just another piece of mind kind of item that you can have with you in case something happens well, and if you're buying climbing gear you can afford it, but it, yeah, I, I have climbing gear. It's not cheap. An ice axe costs as much as a personal beacon. I, I like some of the cheap ones that you yeah. can, and you can rent them. Yeah, you can rent them. There's some uh, insurance companies that insure uh, extreme explorers, yeah, and you can, for a specific trip, rent it for that trip. So if you're going somewhere like that, you go and get especially it. if you're hiking alone, yeah. deep in the backcountry. Especially I, if you're alone, I would just recommend buying one. Uh, you know, worry about the cost of using it. If you get lost, like it could save your life. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these experienced hikers on these forums, even back in 2013, were kind of like, yeah, he should, you know, most guys don't carry these and they should. The ones that are serious, you know, climbers like Matt was. So unfortunately, um, you know, he didn't have one of those with him. So um, also at this time, they opened up a missing persons case in Matt's hometown because they wanted to seek warrants for cell phone and internet history. Um, and, uh, law enforcement also spoke with families that were staying at the campsite before Matt disappeared just to see, cause he was actually talking to some of the families about what he was going to do, but none of them could remember 
or he didn't mention like specifics. So again, you know, if he just had told one of them like, Oh yeah, tomorrow I'm going up the Ritter range, like, boom, you got a last known location. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so it's just too bad that that didn't happen. Uh, and then on October 13th of 2013, um, the family actually got the warrants and the cell phone and internet logs didn't reveal any new information. So nothing that they didn't already know. So um, normally, I mean, so that's not the end of this story. Uh, something interesting happened um, in 2019. <laughs> uh, so on October 7th of 2019, while closing in on the summit of California's second highest peak, sc- climbers discovered skeletal remains. Um, a body was discovered discovered on October 7th near a lake in the remote rock-filled bowl between the towering peaks of Mount uh, Tyndall and Williamson, which rises to 14,374 feet. At the time, the Inyo County Sheriff did not have any leads as to who they belonged to. So family all of a sudden suddenly thought, well, maybe this could be Matt. And there's other missing people in this area that they thought the bones might, might've belonged to. However, uh, nine days later, the DNA analysis came back and determined the remains belonged to Agichi Matasumara. Sorry about the pronunciation, a Japanese man who had lived in internment camp for those of Japanese ancestry during world war two. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, the fifty or the forty-six year old was living with his family and eleven thousand other incarcerated Japanese at the uh, Manzaner War Relocation Center when he joined a group of fishermen on July 29, nineteen forty-five, to venture up into the high mountain lakes, according to a news release from the Inyo County Sheriff's Office. Several days later, on August second, he left the main group, venturing out on his own to paint and sketch in solitude among the sweeping mountain vistas. But a storm came in, and in the aftermath, uh, the fishing group couldn't find their lost friend. They hiked down the mountain, hoping he had beaten them back. But he wasn't there and uh, died in the mountains. A month later, a couple nearby, uh, Independence, California, were hiking Mount Williamson when they found his body, the news release says. They had to leave him there, uh, his daughter uh, told the National Park Service in 2018. But, you know, you couldn't bring him down from there because it's too high. Uh, His wife, uh, Ido, sent a sheet up with the burial party to cover her husband's body, and the Buddhist church held a funeral for him uh, below at the camp. So that's, like, as morbid, like, kind of cool, I guess. Like, uh, they they got closure, and it, like, opened up and brought a neat story to... Yeah, I mean, a closure in a you know a terrible time in American history where we had yeah. uh, internment camps on U.S. soil in the lower forty-eight. That's so messed up. Um, so it's it's not you know a great look for the U.S. at that time. But anytime you can bring closure to a family yeah. when someone's lost or missing, I think uh, is a good thing. So it's absolutely. I, it's sad that it you know it wasn't Matt's remains because you know his family researching this uh they pulled out all the stops like contacting media organizations the facebook page posting on every forum they could find flyers they were flying in to search they did everything they could to try and find him and you know they just they couldn't find anything yeah it's just awful um couple interesting notes before we get to our theories on this one um 
like a lot of these cases around the time Matt went missing, there were a lot of bad storms in the area. So, um, the sheriff's office stated that, um, there were three days of bad weather in the middle of July. There were flash floods in the remote mountain valleys, uh, which in the past have cost hikers their lives. There were also hail, thunder, and lightning, but overnight temperatures didn't drop low enough at this time, um, to make exposure an issue for an experienced hiker. So, uh, did storms cause his disappearance? Did storms, you know, remove his remains? We don't know. But there were some bad storms in the area at the time of his disappearance. So it's just kind of, it's another one of those, every episode we do, and maybe, you know, there's a correlation to people going missing in bad weather in alpine environments. Uh, we always talk about not hiking or climbing in thunderstorms. And uh, so, you know, who knows? That could have played a role in his disappearance. Sure. Another in- interesting thing about this is because Matt's car was in the shop, his only option to get to trailheads was walking, hitchhiking, or public transportation. So, um, you know, he there's a lot of I've you know I've been the Yosemite. There's a lot of public transportation there, but you know, did Matt Matt hitchhike and come across somebody crazy and they abducted him? Who knows? I think it's just a, a theory. Yep. Um, I think after a couple of the previous episodes, we <laughs> can't outrule like serial killers, anything yeah. like that. I mean, I'd say it's at the bottom of that list, but yeah, I'll, I'll I have some things bubbling up in my head. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till you're done. So yeah, I mean, those are just a couple of interesting notes about um, Matt and you know the weather and the fact that he was you have to hitchhike or ride public transportation. So. Um, before I go into kind of what people think happened, what do you, what do you think happened, Joe? Um, going through just like our top ones that we always mention, I don't believe it's animals at all. Okay. Uh, nothing leaning towards animal. Um, I'm like between where I'd rate exposure and serial killer. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I'm yeah. like, cause I, for someone that experienced, I would say, even if he got caught up in a rainstorm or something yeah, with his backpack, with experience, he could figure shelter out and then hike out mm-hmm. the next day um, versus getting picked up. And when I say serial killer, I'd say foul play. So I'll just, yeah. I'll change it to foul play, like getting picked up by somebody he shouldn't have been or whatever. Um, I'd say that's the next most likely those to me are all like 10% chance ish yeah. type stuff. Not big. Likely. Honestly, I think the biggest thing that could have happened is that he did what he said he was going to do. He's, he took his crampons. Yeah. He's going on snow and ice. The biggest threat that scares me the most personally, when I go anywhere with snow and ice crevasse, mm-hmm. if he didn't have any gear at all, if he stepped on a crevasse, that's it. Yeah. It's, and that's, that's like, even if somebody knew the area you're in, they talk about there'll be people that are in a group traversing a crevasse and they're not roped up and somebody falls down and they're unable to find the one he fell in and yeah. they saw him. It's so difficult. It's yeah. like needle in a haystack. That's just what I've heard from search and rescue people. Um, unfortunately, I think that's probably it. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to cross a snowfield in the Tetons. It was probably a hundred yards long and it was on a very sloped mountainside and I didn't have any, any gear to cross a snowfield. And I took it like as slow as you can possibly walk leaning to the side. Cause if I slipped, it was going to be like a 500 foot tumble down jagged 
rocks on like a yeah probably like an angle like this yeah just not fun no <laughs> um so so yeah I'll go into kind of what um I I got from my research so first off the Mammoth Lakes Police Department uh ruled out any foul play it didn't go into detail why but um when I was first doing this I was like maybe you, maybe the the owner of the the car shop was a suspect, but he was ruled out early on, and he actually, um, there were some reports that he actually helped in the search. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't him. Was there somebody at the campground that was involved in foul play? But, again, the police interviewed everyone that was staying at the campground, and they all checked out according to the, you know, law enforcement officials. So, you know, they don't think it was foul play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ruled out suicide. Um, so Matt did not have any financial troubles. Uh, he was single, and he showed no signs of depression. Um, when his friends last saw him in Mammoth, uh, Jill said he was in his normal optimistic self. Uh, and, you know, that's not always um, – a lot of times people that have, you know, some mental health issues don't outwardly show it to friends and family until – you know, it's yeah. I've heard stories of where it's been proven that that's happened, and people like I, I it never yeah. would have guessed. So yeah, it doesn't rule it out. But based on he's doing that stuff, that doesn't seem like a trip you go on to 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 off yourself. So I would argue that that's yeah, he just spent weeks, uh, you know, climbing peaks and doing all these amazing hikes. I don't yep. get the impression that he went out there to commit suicide. Agree. <laughs> so um, that was ruled out by uh, law enforcement. Um, they ruled out animal attack. Um, their biggest thing, they said, there's no grizzlies uh, in that area. And as we've stated before. <laughs> Not in that area or the entire state of California? No grizzlies are in California. They've been expatriated out of there <laughs> yeah. in the 40s or something? Um, so no animal attack. Um, some of the media floated the theory of a kidnapping. So maybe he was hitchhiking and a crazy guy picked him up. I feel like that could just be the media being the media. Yeah. Like wanting kinda... a little bit more of uh, some spice to a story. So I, I would give that like a 5% chance. Yeah. 5 to 10%. Yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. But, but yeah, yeah, I can't rule it out. And the <clears> overall <throat> opinion of law enforcement, search and rescue, family and friends was he was planning to hike the Ritter Range. And like we stated earlier in the episode, it's a very challenging area to hike and climb. And even experienced climbers could fall to their death. And, um, you know, family went on to say that he, he didn't really have the proper equipment to last out there overnight. He had very little food and water. Um, and even the most strong, even the strongest hiker, if they don't have the proper gear and they get injured, they're not going to survive long, um, you know, maybe three to five days, best case scenario, depending on your injury. Um, so... I think 80%, 90% chance that, you know, 99% of the climbs he's done went fine and something happened. Maybe he lost his concentration for a second and slipped. Or maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, he misjudged his footing on a snowfield and See, that's tumbled it, over. That's, I would have probably said fall climbing, but he didn't bring any of that gear. Yeah. So I totally think he was just hiking. And I wonder if that's one of the cases where, like you said, he does all these really difficult ones all the time to him. This is an easy snowfield. I'm just going to cross real quick and then maybe guard down a little bit and then boom, 
my guess is he probably went off trail. Uh, he, Especially if he's taking a picture he brought his camera with. Maybe he's trying to go get a cool shot. He may have gone off trail to go scope out some new climbing routes. Um, you know, who knows what, what he was doing, but I think, you know, good chance that he, maybe he went off trail and he wasn't familiar maybe with the, the area he was walking in and something happened where he lost his footing and fell into an area that they just weren't able to find him. Based on the pictures we saw of this location, that w- could easily happen. And based on my research, reading forums about this area where hikers and climbers have talked, it's you know very treacherous, very steep. Uh, this volcanic rock, if you've ever hiked on that stuff, I've hiked on volcanic rock in uh, Hawaii, and it it if you fell onto it, not from very high up, it would really do some damage. Like my boots got shredded up from just walking on the stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, unfortunately, that he probably suffered some kind of accident, you know, by falling. And I think it did him in that he, they weren't able to start the search and rescue operation sooner. Um, especially if yeah. he, he got lost or injured before those storms happened. They were having flash floods up in the mountains, and he'd already fallen. I mean, that could have washed his remains somewhere that they'll never find. Or some sort of uh, immobilizing injury. Yeah. If you're, okay, he's injured, maybe he's trying to crawl up, and then you add in a couple days of rain. Yeah. Hypothermia. He's up in the snow fields, gets wet. Yeah. that That's where time would have been Yep. on his side. So, yeah, I think unlike um, a couple of cases we recently did, I think this one's a little more... Uh, cut and dry on what I think happened to him. Yeah, I, I'm very confident. I agree with you on that. That's it's something that related. Yeah. So um, interesting story. Again, thank you to Julie Garrett for uh, recommending this story. And uh, Joe, I don't know. Do you have any other any other things to say? Nope. <laughs> uh, just thanks again for tuning into the show. We appreciate all of you, our lawyer loyal listeners, for sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Uh, another shout out to, uh, my coaches, Jacob and screech from the fight life sports show, because I told them I would do it and maybe they'll help me get an orange belt faster. Who knows? Joe erotic. No, just like, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we had a super great post of a bear encounter. Ooh, I do want to address that. Oh, because, um, everyone started fighting <laughs> about oh, it. I saw that. Yeah. Everyone started calling them all dumb and I was trying to like make piece because it went everywhere like it went to like over like two hundred thousand shares have you never been on the internet before but (laughs) here's the deal i've been on the internet i didn't expect it to blow up but here's my take i wrote a long thing on there but in word and i put the uh a gif from uh semi-pro i saw that will ferrell everybody love everybody (laughs) (laughs) when they're all fighting on the bus but to me uh, based on the comments, it looked like this family had taken a seaplane in somewhere. Yeah. And there was a bear up ahead of them, and yeah. they panned back quick. Another one was coming, and they were off the trail. That's what I've always been told to do. When we went to Glacier, we had that whole, we had to watch a video. They gave yeah. us a talk, and they said, hey, if a bear's coming up on you, and you're on a trail, and there's trees on both sides, just get out of the way. Yep. Group up, make yourself big, and let it go about its business. Yeah. And that's what they did. Yeah. So I'd argue they did everything proper. You know, you don't want to run. If you no. run, the thing's going to assume your prey. And, and we don't know if you. others in the party had bear sprayed like ready. Exactly. I, that yeah, was a comment that yeah, everyone... Yeah, they're like, oh, you film now? It's you like, pulled oh. your phone out and said you're bear sprayed. Well, 
maybe someone else had. Well, and if you listen real close, you can hear the sea captain say, Hey, we're okay. Get your phones out. Take a picture. Like he's telling, he's instructing him like, Hey, this is really unique. Do it. He probably had it under control. Yeah. And to be honest, if I saw a bear coming up on us, I'd have my bear spray. I'd immediately pull my phone out or you and I always have GoPros going. I'd be clicking that thing on and I would be ready to do it. So stop hating on those people. Um, but anyway, if you want to see that video, you can go on Facebook and follow (laughs) our page, check the video out, share it with your friends. Um, and now we're doing all these videos on YouTube. So go on YouTube. You can see the episode, see what we look like and all the crazy hand gestures I make because I'm Italian. Um, (laughs) it's just another way to support the show too, because, uh, shares, likes, and follows all help us grow. If you can't support us monetarily, if you can support us monetarily, go to the Facebook store, buy a hat. Uh, buy a t-shirt. Mike probably didn't get it up yet, even though he promised he would. It's up. It's up. Boom. All right. Uh, we got coffee mugs. We got stickers. We got lots of cool stuff. If you go on Patreon, we have extra shows and other things, and you can also uh, earn those rewards by being a monthly subscriber and now a yearly subscriber. And lastly, just remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or just taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>